Let me read 1 Corinthians 16. First Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I shall stay with you and even spend the winter, that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. Let no one therefore despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you, with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints." that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. And I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting, this greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed, Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you. In Christ Jesus, amen. We'll pray. Heavenly Father, we again just come to you and, and as the author of this book and as the Savior of our souls, that you would speak to us, Lord, nurture us, correct us, instruct us, Lord, as we need. You know, God, each of our hearts, where we are today and what we need to receive from you. And I pray that by your spirit, we would hear you and you would minister to us, God, as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Seems like a long time since I was here. Um, appreciate Bill and Clay filling in for me. Patsy and I were at a funeral in Phoenix two weekends ago. We drove out there for that record time, and then we took a few days off, and I appreciate the elders um, allowing us to do that. So um, we're finishing up 1 Corinthians. We'll actually have one more Sunday as my plan next Sunday to kind of summarize and tie things together. 
But here we're in the last chapter, and oftentimes last chapters are kind of just skimmed over because there seem to be just a few final thoughts that are thrown in. But as with all of God's Word, it is all God's Word, every single word of it. And it's all here for a reason. And certainly this is no exception. There are several parts to this last chapter. He speaks about fundraising. It's always fun to talk about fundraising. Um, He talks about um, our plans and God's will. He talks about God's men, his servants. He talks, gives some, just some overview, um, basic generic statements concerning men as a whole. He gives some examples of some good men, and then he has some final thoughts and a brief benediction. So he starts out here by talking about some fundraising, and there's a context to this. Um, we know more about this from 2 Corinthians and also from Romans, Romans chapter 15. And what's happened is that back in Israel, and in particular in the city of Jerusalem, there's a famine going on. And it's mainly apparently been going on for a while, and the people are in great need. And Paul, it looks like over a period of maybe a year, has been collecting money from all the different churches. And then he's going to return to Jerusalem and deliver this very substantial um, gift, financial gift, to the poor Christian Jews in Jerusalem. And so he's writing to all the churches. He writes to the, to the Roman church about it. He writes to um, the churches of Asia Minor. And now he's writing to the church in Corinth and, and, um, and encouraging them to do this. It's something that he's already spoken to. In fact, that's one of the reasons we think that there was probably a, another letter to the Corinthians prior to 1 Corinthians because Paul, as he says here, has already talked to them about this subject. And he makes clear that when he finally comes to Corinth, he doesn't want to say a word about money. Nobody likes to talk about money, and Paul was no exception with this. And he says, I want you to just get everything done in my absence, so that when I show up, nothing has to be said, the collection has already been made, and then I can go and deliver it, and you can send whoever you want with me. So just to step through some of the particulars here, because it is significant. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. So there's no unique case here. He's saying the same thing to everybody. On the first day of every week, and so we know from Acts that the early church from the very beginning, instead of meeting on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, began meeting on Sunday, the first day of the week, which was Resurrection Day. So right from the beginning, the church goes, you know, we know we've been having, and the church was Jewish, if you recall, we know that we've been worshiping on Saturday, the Sabbath, all these years, and, um, but we're under a new covenant. We don't have to, to do that, and, um, and we really want to remember Jesus with every week, and so let's get together on Sunday, the Lord's Resurrection Day, And that's what was their practice, and that's still today. Why most churches get together on Sunday is because it's viewed as the resurrection day of the Lord, and we've been doing that for 2,000 years now. So on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside. And so this was not an offering that was supposed to come just from some, but Paul's expectation that every person would be contributing, and not just a few. But let each person put aside on the first day of every week. So it's a regular systematic giving. It's not impulsive. It's not spontaneous. 
It's not emotional. There's no big plea here. Paul says, in effect, you determine how much you can give based upon how much God is prospering you. But he expects every person to give as they have been prospered. If you've been prospered a lot, then there's more that you can set aside. If you've been prospered less, then obviously there's less that you can set aside. But the expectation is everybody has something that they can give. That may seem controversial. Um, I don't know why it should be. We all, in one area of our life or another, have been given more than what we need. I think that's pretty standard. And why does God give us more than what we need? I have come to believe that our first thought, when we have more than what we need, should be, Lord, who is it for? Because it's not necessarily for us. And it's very likely for others who are in need. And it may be that you don't have an abundance of money, but you know most people have more than what they need, especially in this country. A number of years ago, when, when Raquel, who's on staff with us, was a, was a high school exchange student, she had a project in high school where she had to figure out, okay, if you were a single mother, um, how much money would it take to live? And we thought, well, that's, that's an interesting assignment. Let's just work on this together. And so we figured out if she went and worked at Walmart at minimum wage, how much money she, would she make? And then we just started with, okay, let's just um, say the tithe is not optional. You want to give away 10%, so just cut 10% out. You know, and it'd be great if you could set aside 10%. And it was amazing to do the math and figure out, you know, it, it might not be a $1,000 a month apartment, but it could be an $800 a month apartment. And it works. And there would be money left over. You may not be able to buy disposable diapers for your baby, but you can buy cloth diapers. And you may not be able to eat meat every single meal, but you can do okay. You can have a, you can have a, it's, you're going to live small, but it's amazing what you can do. When Patsy and I were in seminary, I mean, we were as poor as church mice. And, um, and I remember telling, you know, once in a while you talk to some of the other guys because most of the guys were pretty poor. And I remember asking the Lord, God, uh, you know, it's our first year of marriage and, and we can both be working full time and never see each other. And so we didn't want to do that. And, and we asked the Lord just to prosper us, to help us. And we found that on living in Dallas, Texas, at, on $900 a month, and most of the seminary guys were paying $1,000 a month in rent. And we made total $900 a month before taxes. And it was amazing how God took care of us. But our, our furniture was secondhand furniture, every single bit of it. Our coffee table was a box with a cloth put over the top of it. My, my desk was a door with two legs under one end and a filing cabinet under the other end. And we went out to eat. Every Friday night was date night. And we gave every month from what we were getting. And it was amazing to see how it was more than enough. God met our needs. And 
And so here, I think it's not unreasonable for Paul to say, as God is prospering each of you, give. For some, that's going to be more than others. But in some way, in some measure, we are all being prospered. That no collections be made when I come. You know, if I don't know a lot about fundraising. I have no interest in fundraising. I've never been a fundraiser. And I am, I, I'm glad to see, I praise God to see how God has provided for me personally, for the ministry at His Hill, for this church, with next to nothing being said about money all these years. We don't even pass the plate in this church. And that was never my decision. That was something that, that's been going on for a long time or not been going on. People of different times have said, is there some way to give in this church? Because almost nothing's ever said. Well, there is. There's a box in the back. And if you want to give, you can put a check in that box. Thank you very much. And that's as much as you're ever going to I think that's the first time I've said anything about that box in probably 10 years. And the Lord more than takes care of us. But if I were in the business of fundraising, I have a brother who's in the business of fundraising, and I am so thankful that it's him and not me. And, you know, it's a different story. And it's about picking up the phone and calling people and saying, hey, I'd like to have breakfast with you or have lunch with you, and, um, and they know what's coming. It's about asking for money. And Paul says, when I get to you, I don't want to say a word about this. I want it to all just be taken care of. In terms of raising money, there could not have been a worse way to go about it than what Paul was doing. And it reminds me of back early in this book when he talked about preaching the gospel. And he says, not in cleverness of speech. He says, we proclaim the gospel, and he, and he says in the, in the weakness of, of human beings doing it and not doing it in the cleverness of speech and doing it verbally, just one-on-one. And I made the point back then when we were looking at the first part of the book, in terms of effective communication, preaching, what I'm doing right now, is the most ineffective form of communication. And Paul says we preach the gospel by the foolishness of the message preached. And he wasn't just talking about the foolish message, but the foolish means of communicating the message. There's no more ineffective way to communicate than just to talk to people. You need visual aids. You need PowerPoint. You need all these different things, and that's what's really going to... And Paul knew that. He knew there was more effective ways, and in his days, it was to be a skilled orator. Cleverness of speech. And he says, I'm not going to do that because I don't want people's faith to rest on the presentation. But I want people's faith to rest on the, on the truth, the content of the gospel. So that when I leave, they're not thinking about the preacher, but they're thinking about the message preached. And I think now he's doing the same thing when it comes to money. This is not the most effective way to raise money. It's not about putting a big chart up on the wall and watching the thermometer get higher and higher and everybody's motivated every week to go, oh, we need to keep the red going up. We've seen that in churches. It's not about 
announcing somebody gave so much, you know, we're going to put their name on the pew. We don't have pews in this church. Good luck with that. Paul's saying, I don't care if there's a weak method. Because it's not about the amount. It's about responding to the Lord, not to the fundraiser. Paul was not into fundraising. There needs to be money. He's not raising it for himself. But none, and, 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 and yet, and he's speaking of it, and there's a, a, a real need, but he in no way wants it to be pressured. He doesn't want it to be impulsive. He doesn't want it to be manipulative. He wants it to be spirit-directed, where we think, we pray, and we say, this is what God wants us to do. I would encourage every one of us to have that kind of mindset. Don't just be moved by the impulsive presentation the manipulative, high-pressure, high-emotion presentation that's been made. But take the time, especially as a married couple, to pull aside and say, let's pray about this. What does God want us to do? It's no doubt maybe that this is a legitimate need, but is this something that God wants to do with what he has given us? And be moved by the Lord. I really appreciate one time we were taking up a collection for something here in the church, and, um, and, and it was... I forget what the figure was, it was that we were collecting for. And when the collection came in, it was exactly to the penny what we were asking the Lord for. And I remember Don saying, the good thing about that is it means everyone was obedient to God. Even those who didn't give were obedient to God, right? Because the exact amount that we were asking the Lord for came in. That means every single person, those who gave were being obedient and those who didn't give were being obedient. Listen to the Lord and don't just be pressured and, and, and manipulated because there's a need. And then he continues and he says, verse three, and when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So Paul says, I'm not gonna handle it. And again, just wisdom. You know, I have, I have no idea, and I don't think any of the elders do, of who gives what in this church. We don't count the money. The deacons do. And the deacons aren't reporting to us how much people give. And that's the way it should be. And that there's just, we distance ours. If you can distance yourself from it, then distance yourself from it. And Paul is saying, I'm not going to even take your money. You choose who you want from your church because you're the people who made the contribution and people from your church can carry it to Jerusalem. That's integrity. It's staying above reproach. And then he says, and if it is fitting, verse 4, for me to go also, and that's who gets to decide that? They do. If you think it's appropriate for me to go along, then I'll go along. But I am perfectly fine with not even being with your guys when they deliver the money. I'm out of the picture. It is not about me. Complete integrity. So these are just four brief verses on money. It has nothing to do with tithing, which, again, the New Testament does not mandate for us. It may be something that God puts on you, but nobody else has the right to tell you that you have to tithe. That is up between you and God. This is a special gift in addition to what would normally be given for a specific group of people who are in need. 
and why Paul feels that he is within bounds to encourage these people who know none of the people back in Jerusalem to give to them is because Paul specifies in Romans 15, you have a spiritual debt to those people. They are Jews. And our faith came through the Jews. Everything that we have as Christians came through the Jewish people. So we owe them, Paul's saying. And they're your brothers. They are believing Jews. They are your brothers. And they are the ones through whom Christ came and all the promises came. So we have a spiritual debt to them. And the principle is where you have, an obliga- where you have received spiritually, you have an obligation to give financially as God prospers you. And so Paul's saying, I'm on good ground here to say, these people that you've never met before, you owe them because the gospel came through the Jews. And where you have a spiritual debt, you have a financial obligation. So that's all on money. Aren't you glad? We'll move on. Verse 5 begins to talk about his personal plans and God's will. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. And then he got in big trouble. So he has to write 2 Corinthians, and right from the first chapter and on into the second chapter, Paul goes, I know most of you are mad because I didn't come like I said I was going to come. And there were people who were saying the only thing Paul was ever interested in was our money. He is a wolf in sheep's clothing, and he came to fleece the sheep. And Paul has to defend himself because he didn't show up. And he's going to defend himself by saying, if you will recall... When I wrote to you that previous letter, I said, if the Lord wills, I will come. It was my intention of coming, but I wasn't sure as what God wanted, and that's why I put that condition, that caveat in there, if the Lord wills. Even Paul knew he had to walk humbly enough to know, as Proverbs says, we make our plans, but God orders our steps. He wanted to go. But he knew that God in his sovereignty can redirect our steps. The Corinthians had no business being upset about that. I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service is open to me. And there are many adversaries. A wide door for effective service. But you'll note, he doesn't say God opened the door. He assumes that God did. I give him that. But he's humble enough, circumspect enough, not to actually say, God opened the door and I know that's where I should go. Because Satan can open doors too. Not just God. He believes that this is what God wants him to do. But he doesn't just come out and say, God has opened this door. Because he could be wrong. Just like he thought the Lord would lead him back to Corinth and it didn't happen. He believes that this open door is something that God has opened, but he won't say God has opened the door because he could be wrong. Not every open door 
is from God. Satan can open doors too. How many times I've heard people bail out of their marriage because God opened a door with another person. How is that an open door? Or they jump from one job to the next continually throughout their careers just because doors keep opening. And they're doing such damage to themselves and to their families. Seeing every open door as being God's opportunity. I had a staff member that I really never wanted to see leave. And somebody came to him and said, would you come and join us? And they said it, I think, two or three times. And he finally said, it must be God's will, because they keep asking. I was so disappointed. And so after them spending about a year at that other ministry, I took them out to dinner one night and said, okay, you left because they asked you to go and join them, and you took it as God's will. So I'm asking you to come back, (laughs) and it must be God's will. And they didn't come back. They had learned that not every open door is necessarily from God. There is an open door for effective ministry. And there are many adversaries. Not only was there opportunity, but there was opposition. And I believe it was that second component that helped Paul to know This is what God had for him. Not just opportunity, but opposition. When Russell Kelfer used to come to his hill and teach our students on knowing God's will, one of the things he would tell them is when you're looking at two different options, neither one of them is immoral, neither one of them violates an absolute of God's word, he says probably God would have you to go with the one that's going to be harder. Because that's the because God uses hard things, tribulations, to produce character. And it's character, Christ's character, reproduced in us that the Lord is after. Open doors that make things constantly easier for us are probably not God's will. But open doors that are going to challenge us, cause us to depend upon Christ more than we did before. Enlarge our faith. Put us in a position we're going to have to cry out to Jesus because we aren't adequate. Even where there would be just direct opposition. That may be more of an indication that this is where the Lord wants you. Because where God is truly doing something, Satan opposes. A wide door for effective service with opposition. Now, having talked about our plans and God's will, and the main lesson there is hold it loosely. Don't be too quick to say God has led. Even Paul wasn't doing that. And it is not a lack of faith to say, if the Lord wills. And to know that when a, God, when a door is opened, maybe it's from God. But when God has opened the door, there will often be adversaries. But just be careful, be humble about saying you know it's God's will. It may not be.
Then he talks about some good men. And in particular, he has in mind here Timothy um, and Apollos. And he says, now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Who would want to go to Corinth and minister? I'd be afraid to go in Corinth and minister. Goodness gracious, these people were bad. They were hard on people. You didn't say what they wanted you to say, and they were after you. They were difficult people. And Paul's going, don't be difficult with this man. He's a good man who's doing God's work. Ease up on him. Let no one despise him. Why would you despise a man like that? Maybe because he's going to speak the truth and not what necessarily you want to hear. It's easy to despise somebody like that. But send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. Concerning Apollos, and Paul says, I told him to come and see you. I encouraged him strongly to come and see you, but it is not his desire to come at this time. Apparently, Paul, Apollos is the minister in, the, in the midst of an effective ministry. And he goes, Paul's not right. It's not the right time. I can't go to them without neglecting what I'm doing here. And Paul was humble enough not to order that man, but to respect him and respect his own walk with God and say, I see what you're saying. Whom I can't even say with 100% certainty that God is leading me. Who am I to say that God is, how God is leading you? That's humility. I like to tell people at different times, I, God loves you, and I have a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> God does love them. And my plans for them don't mean it's God's will. And Paul loves Apollos and has a wonderful plan for his life. And Apollos is man enough to say, Paul, your plans are not necessarily God's plans. And Paul's humble enough to admit it. God may have another plan for you. We need to treat people like that. We can't hang on to them. I remember Ian Thomas at times, he never got frustrated by it, but he said, you know, we've done a lot of training with people. And it seems like once we get them trained, man, they just become dynamite. They go off and start some other ministry or go somewhere else. And you a long list of them in torchbearers. It's like torchbearers is where they got their start. Alan Redpath, Stuart Briscoe, Charles Price, um, John Hunter, Billy Strachan. A lot of these names maybe you haven't heard, but man, different parts of the world, they are well-known Christians. And they got their start in torchbearers. And then it's like they got too big for torchbearers. That's okay. Torchbearers doesn't own them. We don't own anybody. People, God has us. God owns us. And it's up to God to move us and put us where he wants us to be. We're just links on the chain. And so Paul pulls back, respects this man, acts humbly toward him, and gives him the freedom to respond to the Lord as he believes God is leading And then Paul gives two verses to men in general, verses 13 and 14. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Five statements in those two verses. I came across one article um, written by a, a woman scholar 
And she was saying, and she went into all different kinds of parallel passages and stuff and said, Paul is not saying act like men. He is saying act like adults. Why would anybody have a problem with Paul saying men act like men? I mean, there's something there that any person, man or woman, would have an issue with that and say, no, that can't be what he's saying. He's saying all of you act like adults. I had a, a video clip sent to me that I thought about putting up today, four minutes long, put out by, um, I think it's called Prego University or something. And a woman talking about how, you know, everything today is about how toxic masculinity is. It's just toxic masculinity. All masculinity is toxic. And this woman is just standing and she goes, we don't need less masculinity. We need better masculinity. And she says, wherever you have, you're always going to have wicked men in the world. And the only thing that can stop wicked men is good men. That's always been the way it is. Women are not going to stop wicked men. It's going to be other men who stand up to wicked men. Good men. We need good men, not less masculinity. And Paul is speaking to that. I mean, how many times have you heard people say rightly, if you want to know what a real man is like, look at Jesus. And you see pure masculinity as God intended it to be. There was strength. There was courage. There was conviction. There was principle with Jesus. And there's no reason to be afraid of him. Unless maybe you were on the wrong side of the truth. And boy, he dropped the hammer on you. But if you were hurting and broken, Jesus was the first one to say, I'm not going to smother out the, the smothering wick. I'm not going to crush the bruised reed. Come to me, all you that are weak and heavy laden, and I'll lift your burden for you. That's good masculinity. Now, you go out and beat people up and show them a lack of compassion and, and abuse them and oppress them as the, as the Pharisees were doing, doctrinally as well as another other way. Man, Jesus is all over you. Have no tolerance whatsoever for it. But at the same time saying, come unto me, all that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll take your burden for you. How is that a bad thing? He wasn't just the come unto me. He was also the woe unto you. It was both. Real masculinity. So in these five things, be on the alert. True enough, most of the time when you see that phrase in the New Testament from Matthew 24 and 25 where Jesus is saying, be on the alert, Israel, for what? For the coming judgment. Or when Paul writes to the churches and he says, be on the alert, for what? For the return of Jesus Christ, for the rapture of the church. I don't believe that, G that Paul here is speaking eschatologically. Because the problem in the, in the Corinthian church was, was not one of not looking for Jesus to come. In fact, he's, told, he's commended them because they were looking and waiting for the day of Jesus' return. The problem in the Corinthian church is the false teaching that's come into this church. People who are preaching a prosperity theology and making it seem as though God's Christians, God's people won't suffer. That they will never experience weakness. And Paul's saying, we're the very dregs of society. We're the scum of the earth. 
We are always poor while you are rich. We are empty while you are filled. What's wrong with that picture? It is the cross of Jesus Christ Paul's preaching. Be on the alert to people who would take you away from the centrality of Jesus Christ and his cross. Be on the alert. Proverbs says, riches are not forever. You need to know the condition of your flocks and the condition of your herds. A man needs to know the condition of his family. Elders need to know the condition of a church. We need to be on the alert. That means you're not just thinking about yourself, but you're looking at the people around you and saying, what is going on? Where is the danger coming from? And stepping into the gap and facing the danger. Be on the alert. Wake up. There are dangers everywhere. And one of the best ways that you can face those dangers as a man is on your knees. Praying, interceding for your families and for those that you love. And I'm telling you, as you pray for the people that you love, God will give you insight in where the, where the danger is coming from. And he will direct you in how to pray and how to get involved with your family and speaking into their lives. Many dads, too many dads, have no idea of the spiritual condition of their families. No idea. Their heads are in the sand. They are not alert to what's going on in their own home. Stand firm. There's a message in every one of these five things. Stand firm in the faith. Had a former student from, I don't even know how long ago, at least 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, that emailed me over the weekend and saying, hey, just want to let you know that, that my mom passed away at 85 years old, and, um, and she asked before she died that, that nobody buy flowers, that they send money to his hill. Because what, how God used his hill in my life and in my brother's life, since my mother was grateful for the rest of her life. And, um, and I wrote him back, and I said, it blesses me more. Not that your mom wants to send money to us. What blesses me more is to know that you and your brother are still walking with Jesus after all these years. That you're still standing firm in the faith. And that's what we want to encourage with each other. And I tell you, as, as men and as, as brothers in Christ, this is one of the best ways that iron sharpens iron is to come alongside each other and say, don't jettison the faith. Keep trusting Jesus. Walk with him. There are, the forces are of hell are arrayed against good men who are walking the faith life. Satan is against us. Stand firm in the faith. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, take up the armor of Christ. Stand firm. All throughout that section on the armor of God, it's all about standing firm. Don't throw in the towel. Act like men. Well, what does that mean? I'm still figuring it out. And I don't have it all right. I can tell you that. But I can mean this. I know it means this. It's okay to be a man. 
contrary to what the world says. It's a good thing. Gender roles matter. There are things in a family that only a mother can do. And there are things in a family that only a father can do. And that's why God intended that every child have a mother and a father. Because God has given specific roles. And when we come together in the church, that doesn't go away. And that's one of the things Paul had to deal with in this church. Because they thought, in Christ, there is no role distinction. It's just everybody is the same. Nonsense. We were not created the same. And in Christ, that doesn't go away. He doesn't make us all the same when we become a Christian. There is a specific role for men, and there's a specific role for women, and they are both invaluable, priceless, and they should be affirmed. And there have been way too many churches around the world that are saying there's no role distinctions, and the men are no longer acting as men. They're no longer leading in their churches. It's all about women leading. And the men are going, well, if you want to, fine, I don't really care to. And the women going, well, if you won't, somebody needs to. And the women aren't acting as God intended for them, and the men aren't acting as God intended for them. We have total confusion and chaos. And kids grow up, sadly, many of them without a mom and a dad. And you would hope when they would come to church, they would see, if they can't see it at home, they can see it when they come to church, what they're missing out on. Men acting like men. That means being good. It means being selfless. It means being brave. It means simply doing the right thing. We went over the weekend on Friday night and saw the movie that just came out unplanned. It's deeply disturbing. On a lot of levels. One, just to sit there and watch an actual abortion take place by sonogram. Deeply disturbing. But I have to tell you, I just wanted to go out and just say, this has got to stop. As long as I'm alive, I will do everything I can to keep another abortion from ever taking place. It is the innocent killing. The killing of an innocent child. It is murder. And men need to stand up. It's not just a problem about women. It is men who are facilitating it. Men that are driving those women to the clinics oftentimes, paying the bill for it to be done. And I have to tell you, maybe it's just me and nobody else will feel the same, but I walked out of that movie not being impressed with the men in the movie. The father of the abortion clinic director or her husband. And they were loving guys. But I didn't see either one of them really standing up. They express their opinion. But sometimes as a man, it's, more, it's not enough just to express your opinion. Do something. When it's in your power to do something. Maybe that's just me overreacting. God has given strength to men. And it can be used, or it can be abused, or it can just be neglected. And I think sometimes the neglect of that strength, passivity, can be just as bad as the abuse of that strength. Stand up and play the man. Be strong. That means strength of faith, strength of character, strength of conviction, 
strength of principle. The Corinthians were all about strength in the wrong way. And Paul goes, I have to say, we're weak in comparison. Remember, the cross of Jesus is about weakness. But it's only until we face our weakness in Christ that we'll ever play the man that God intended us to be. The true strength, it's not about me asserting myself, dominating people, but it's the strength that comes in trusting Jesus no matter what. The strength of character that I will do what God wants me to do, no matter the cost. The strength of conviction to express what you believe, even though people are going to reject you for it, especially to your own family. There was a time when I was growing up, kids had hanging over them, if you don't straighten up, I'll kick you out on the street. You know what? A lot of kids straightened up because they believed it. Kids got spanked. Now you get threatened with child abuse and getting your kids taken out of your home. And we would never think of actually throwing them out. I'm talking not 13 years old, but maybe 18, 19, 25 And they're living totally in self-indulgent, irresponsible lives. There comes a time when as a man you say, enough's enough. We're breaking your plate. You can't eat here anymore. Get your own life. And let all that you do be done in love. I don't think there's any contradiction in what I've just been saying in that fifth statement. Because love doesn't just embrace and go along with everything that's happening under your roof. Again, look at Jesus. He didn't embrace everything. He didn't just go along with everything. There were things where he just said, not on my watch. Walking into the temple, not once but twice, and cleansing the temple of all the stuff that was going on in there. Did he do that in love? Yes! Love for his father in his father's house. Everything we do should be motivated by love. And I can tell you, when a man acts like a man, not everybody's going to feel the love all the time. That's part of the cost. It breaks my heart when I have students tell me that they don't feel loved by me. Breaks my heart. Because I think nothing could be further from the truth. And I want them to know that I love them. And I go out of my way to tell them that I love them because I know they need to hear the words. But I also know love is not just about being sentimental. And I'm willing to cry with them and put my arms around them and encourage them And I'm good with that. But I also have to be willing to say, not in this house. This kind of stuff keeps up, I'll send you home. We cannot permit this. This is not good for you. It is not good for the people around you. 
It is ungodliness. And we can't just let it go. It has to stop. Because I love you. And I believe sin brings death. And I don't want to see you die. Whether that's just the death of your soul or that's actually dying physically, I don't know. But I believe God's word. The wages of sin is death. And I care for you. And I don't want you to walk in death. So I'm going to stand against it as much as in my power to do so. Because I love you. That's what a dad does. It's what a good man does. We don't always get it right. But these five things all hang together in one package. It's all true of masculinity, and it is our high calling as men. And it's not possible apart from a deep abiding faith in Jesus Christ and dependence upon him. I wanted to get through the chapter, but we're out of time. So we'll finish it up next week and do a bit of review on 1 Corinthians. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, you alone are adequate for these things. I thank you, God, for what you've called us to. Yourself. And as you have made us men and women, we are not the same. We have been made in your image. And we are both indispensable to you being honored and glorified on this earth. I pray that we would value, God, what you have made us to be. And that in Christ we would aspire, God, to be what you've made us, men and women of God. That your life, your goodness, your holiness, your strength would be seen in each of us as can only uniquely be displayed in masculinity and femininity. Good gifts from you. Thank you for the money that you bring to us, God, and I pray that we would be good stewards for your glory and that we would not just be hoarding but looking for every opportunity to give to those who are in need who are around us. Direct our hearts in this, God, that we would be a generous people not a cold and calculating, hoarding people. We thank you, God, that you direct our steps. And I pray that all of our plans would be yielded to you in submission and in humility. And that we would just not be confident in what we are doing, but we would remain humble, teachable, responsive, God, to your Spirit's direction. And I pray that as we face increasing opposition from the enemy, opposition just for being good, for being lights in this world, that God, you would give us that grace, and I know that you will, to stand firm and to make the most of each opportunity that you've given us. We do thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our sufficiency, our adequacy, for all that you have called us to. In Christ's name, amen.